1945, Harry Truman was the president, and he had a very difficult decision to make in regards to World War II. There was lots of life, loss of life that was happening both on the American front with the soldiers, and you know the Japanese were fighting hard, willing to put women and children even on the front lines to defend their empire. So Truman was faced with the decision of whether or not it would be right to employ an atomic bomb. As you know, Truman chose to use not one but two. Now, behind the story of this bomb, there's another story that's taking place. In order to get the parts for this bomb halfway around the world, the military, military had to transport top secret components of this bomb via a boat to a small landing strip out on this tiny island in the Pacific called Tinian. So in July of 1945, one of our Navy's finest cruiser ships, the USS Indianapolis, was sent across the Pacific to deliver these top secret parts that made up this bomb. The Indianapolis, it was a very fine ship. It was prized for its technology, its speed, it had made a record-breaking run from San Francisco to Pearl Harbor, and also its orderliness. Captain Charles McVeigh ran a tight ship of nearly 1,200 sailors. It seemed like the perfect ship to accomplish this mission, and it did. It reached Tinian, secret cargo was unloaded, and her mission had been accomplished. However, what happened next was a tragedy. She continued west and was heading toward the Philippines when a Japanese submarine spotted her and successfully torpedoed her not once but twice, causing an explosion that split the ship and resulted in her sinking in only 12 minutes. However, what happened next was a surprise. In those 12 minutes, 300 sailors died immediately. 800-plus sailors were able to jump off the boat and into the sea, shark-infested waters. You can read about it. However, when these sailors were in the water, hope was spreading around. Their hope was that the naval stations in either Guam, which was in their relationship to the east, or the Philippines, the naval station in the Philippines, which was to the west, would be tracking the cruiser and following them along the way, and noticing that they were off the radar, off their maps at that time, and then send rescuers. The only problem was that the all-important USS Indianapolis was, for lack of better terms, in a handoff phase from one Navy command in Guam to another Navy command in the Philippines when she was struck by the torpedoes. And neither command station made it a priority to rightly give attention to the ship. Instead of rescuers being sent immediately, it took four, between four and five days before anyone was discovered. And the only reason that these floating sailors, only 300 of them that made it, were actually discovered was because a few pilots were doing routine flights for other purposes. This all-important ship was supposed to have everyone's attention and everyone's respect, but instead this cruiser carrying over 1,100 sailors was dismissed and the ship sank three and a half miles below the ocean's surface. 
The central task of prioritizing this boat, of listening for communication, of keeping a steady eye on this ship was lost. You can find the rest of the story just by reading the book, The USS Indianapolis. Now, as we come to chapter 9 in Mark, we see a glorious Savior. Jesus is going to be exalted in a way that we have not yet seen in the book of Mark. There is no argument against this truth that Jesus is to be the center of our attention. He's not to fall off the radar screen. But in this story, we see a failure on behalf of Peter. A failure to see Jesus in a way that Jesus deserves to be seen. It's a failure that, if we're honest, we often see in our own lives. So that leads us to the big idea for the sermon this morning, if you are taking notes. And that is this, that Jesus must be central in my life. Jesus must be central in my life. As we're saying that, I mean, let's just think about it for a moment. What would you say is central to your thoughts, your affections, your pursuits? What has your attention this morning? What, what is leading you along in a way where you're saying, I'm committed to that in an uncompromising way. I will pursue this goal to the end. That's the center that we're talking about. And as we see in this passage, Jesus is to have that in each one of our lives as Lord and Savior. He is to be the center of our lives. So just a little review before we jump into chapter 9. What Mark has been showing us in his gospel is that Jesus is not simply a mere man, nor is he a prophet like John the Baptist or Elijah or, as we will see, even Moses. Mark has been showing us that Jesus needs to be understand, understood through the lens of two identities. And you're saying, wait a second, help me out. I thought just one identity here. No, two identities. Think about George Washington historically. If you read biographies on him, you can understand him through the lens of being a general for the Continental Army. And if you read later biographies, you can read them through the lens of being a president, elected president, our first president. And so you can look at him through these two different lenses, but you're looking at the same person. What Mark is doing is, is he's saying, let me present you with Jesus, but I want you to see two important identities about him. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. What are those identities? He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer. And you have to keep in mind that as Mark is writing this account for his listeners, Mark is writing during a time when the last covenant that God had made with his people was the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant was, I am going to send my people a king. I'm going to send them a Messiah, a deliverer who will come and rescue my people. And so, as Jesus is living out his life, God's people are fervently looking, looking, who is the king? Is God going to fulfill his promise? And Jesus shows up on the scene, and everybody starts just starting to open their eyes, and they're saying, he could be it. That's one lens. Not only is he a king, but again, Mark 1, verse 1 says that he is the son of God. Mark wants us to know that he's not just a mere man like David was a man, anointed king, and a special king. He is a man who is divine. 
He is the Son of God. He is 100% God. He's come from heaven. As Pastor Mike prayed earlier, he came and took on skin. He became human. So he is sent from heaven. Here is the Son of God from heaven in human flesh. And Mark wants us to know that as Jesus is walking on the earth's surface here, here is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in Jesus himself. And here is the Son of God standing before us. And then we come to this chapter here, and we're seeing, of course, if he is the Messiah and he is the Son of God, what does he deserve? He deserves to be at the center of each of our lives this morning. So three points to the sermon that will help us walk through the passage. The first point is simply this, prioritize Jesus. The second point is going to be listen to Jesus. And then the third will be look at Jesus. So prioritize Jesus. Let's jump into the text. Andy preached through verse 1 last week where Jesus makes the statement to the crowd of saying, oh, I'm in Luke right now in my Bible. I got to turn to Mark, guys. <laughs> Luke 9, verse 1. And he called the 12 together. And I'm thinking, that's not it. Okay, Mark 9, verse 1. Here it is. Here's where Andy left off last week. He said, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What is Jesus talking about? He's saying the kingdom is going to come and some of you who are standing here are going to see it come with power. When will the kingdom come with power? Well, a few thoughts for us. As Jesus has been going throughout his ministry, we've heard John the Baptist's words, Prepare yourselves, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has brought power into a spiritual realm, casting out demons. In Luke's gospel, Luke 11, verse 20, here's how Jesus said it. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what did Jesus do? He cast out demons. So... We could say the kingdom of God was present there. Luke 17, verse 21, he said this, For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Okay, so there was the kingdom of God that was present. Jesus is referring to himself, and he's claiming to be the essence of the kingdom. You see Jesus, you see him at work. Here is the, the splashing out of the kingdom into people's lives. So when we come to Mark 9, verse 1, when he says, it will come with power, sometimes we think, wait a second, um, did I miss something because I thought Jesus said the kingdom of God was in your presence. Some would take this to mean this is simply a futuristic sense. Someday when Jesus comes back and he rules and reigns on the earth, maybe he's talking about that. I don't think so because he says that there are some here who will not taste death until they see it. Others say that it specifically refers to his death and his resurrection, which more or less kind of threw open the gates of the kingdom providing salvation, the Spirit coming, and working in people's lives with repentance. But I don't think it refers to that because he's right after this going to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration. 
And I think that what Jesus is speaking of here is he's saying, you are going to see more aspects of the kingdom coming with power up on this mountain. There are three men who are going to go with him and see just more aspects of God's power in and through the life of Jesus. So in verses two and three, we move into this next section where Jesus, after six days, takes some of the people, Peter, James, and John, his closest disciples, he takes them up to a high mountain. We don't know which mountain this was or is. There's some traditions that say it was Mount Tabor. There's some that say it was Mount Hermon. The Bible doesn't name it, just says it's a high mountain. But put yourself in this story. Let's be Peter, James, and John for a few minutes. Jesus is saying, come on up with me. We're going to ascend this mountain. You've been on top of mountains before. We were in the Appalachians the last couple of weeks, and we summited a, a couple of mountains, and there's tall grass at the top. There were some boulders at the top. This mountain may have had some trees. You can imagine the disciples just getting up to the top of the mountain, just be like, okay, this is going to be a good retreat for us. Who brought the bread? Who brought the water? Enjoy the view. We'll take a rest up here maybe for a day or two. But Mark doesn't stop there. Mark moves along quickly, because what happened next must have absolutely surprised these three weary travelers who hiked up to the top of this mountain. In verse 3, or in verse 2, it says immediately that Jesus was transfigured before them. The word for transfigured is the Greek word metamorphomai. And you kind of hear the connection with that, metamorphosis which recalls the picture of that caterpillar crawling up on top of maybe your butterfly aquarium, attaching itself and just going into that cocoon and over that stage, morphing, eventually coming into a butterfly. There's a, there's a transfiguring effect that is taking place. And for Peter, James, and John, it's happening right in front of their eyes. Something is happening with Jesus. And Mark says here that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So you can see his garments here all of a sudden starting to dazzle, radiant in color. Now Luke's gospel says that the appearance of his face was altered. And Matthew's gospel says that his face shone like the sun. So again, put yourself on top of the mountain in Peter, James, and John's shoes, and you're looking there at Jesus, and all of a sudden, he starts glowing, and not just glowing, but shining, and his face is beaming. You're like, there's no explanation for this. This is not dehydration. Something supernatural is taking place. But the visual doesn't end there, because two other men just show up on top of the mountain. And it's Elijah and Moses. Now, both of these men were considered great prophets in the Old Testament, heroes of Israel's past. Moses had led Egypt or Israel out of Egypt. They had seen God's power and deliverance through the 10 plagues. There was Elijah. You remember him. He was up on top of Mount Carmel and had a duel with the prophets of Baal. There was 450 prophets up there. They had their sacrifice and their altar over there. Elijah, just one guy, he had a sacrifice on his altar. And he said, let's see whose God is more powerful. You call on your God to have fire come down from heaven and smoke that thing. 
And let's see if your God can do that. And they prayed and they slashed their skin and started bleeding, doing all their religious kind of stuff. Nothing happened. Elijah prayed. Here comes God's power. Just torches that thing up. He saw the power of God. Moses and Elijah are also mentioned the very last book of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is coming to a close. These two guys get a mention. Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Where God says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so here are these two important prophets from the Old Testament showing up from the dead with Jesus. And then Peter. He opens his mouth and he says this. Rabbi, which is for Jesus, it is good that we are here. Now, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, if you're not familiar with this term tent, it probably has the idea of a monument. So the idea is simple. Let's monumentalize all three of these guys right now because all three of you are super duper important. And upon first reading, that sounds great because this is a crazy experience, but Mark hits the pause button for us to let us know that this is not a good thing that Peter has just said. Look what he says. Mark says in verse 6, he did not know what to say for they were terrified, which is language for Peter, out of your fear, you just said the wrong thing. Because in doing so, Peter is speaking from a heart that is wrongly exalting Elijah and Moses to the same level as Jesus. Who is the dazzling central figure on the mountain? It's Jesus. Who is the center of human history upon whom our eternity hinges? It's Jesus. But whom does Peter say, let's build monuments for? It's all three people. And what Peter is doing here is just veering off course here, a subtle yet terrible miscalculation in the Christian life of elevating other people to rival the glory of Jesus. And in doing so, you're pulling Jesus down and he's losing in your eyes his supremacy and your commitment to him. So let's just talk about this for a minute. So many people have drifted away from following Jesus because their hearts allowed others to rival the glory of Jesus. Young people, sometimes you can be so enamored with people. It's a boyfriend or a girlfriend who is nice, who calls himself or herself a Christian. You can be so amazed by them, so enraptured by them, that they are raised to a level of equal or greater worth than Jesus. And how will you know if they have been raised to an equal or greater worth? It's when you begin to follow them in patterns that are disobedient to the Lord. But they call themselves a Christian. 
Your greatest commitment as a Christian young person is to Jesus and Jesus alone. Adults, a person in your life becomes so significant that you find yourself focused on them to the point that they stand on a pedestal. Sadly, this has happened in so many churches, and we've seen this, where pastors get almost like divine status. They're in a position of authority, shepherd the flock, but people begin to look at them as though they're godlike. He can do no wrong. And people become enamored with them. And then the pride goes to that pastor's heart. And they start leading in abusive and prideful ways. But nobody at all stands up and says, that's sin. Instead, they follow him because they're enamored with him. And here we're saying, wait a second, even though there might be good people in the world, even great people in the world, even people like Moses and Elijah, how have you been thinking about Jesus? Where does he stand in your life? Have you been thinking about him at all? Is he exalted in your heart above all other people, above all other things? We want to say to Peter, Jesus deserves to be your hero, Peter. Remember, Peter, that only Jesus is going to the cross, as you saw last week. He's the only one who can suffer on your behalf, Christian. Only him. Not your boyfriend, not your girlfriend, not your pastor. Only Jesus has been the one who can cast out demons and set people free from their oppression. It's only Jesus who can be this Messiah, the Son of God. And so Jesus truly in himself is rivaled by no one. He, not Moses, not Elijah, not your boss, not your boyfriend, not your girlfriend, not that person in your life, is the one whom God's people have been waiting for, and only he can bring deliverance into your life. So we exalt Jesus above all others. He stands alone. And throughout Scripture, we see constantly, over and over again, Jesus is the exalted one. Revelation chapter 19 says that he's given the title, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the king of all the kings. He's the Lord of all the lords. Colossians 1, we see Jesus' power as he is the creator. Isaiah 53, we see Jesus as the suffering servant on your behalf. Hebrews 1, we see Jesus. He's above the angels. All the angelic beings come and worship him. In John 10, Jesus is the shepherd who loves his sheep and holds them and will not let anyone pluck them from his father's hands. And so here is Jesus, and as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we have to keep coming back over and over again to beholding him and seeing his glory. And when we see his glory, truly when we see his glory and when we keep him central in our lives, our lives are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Which begs the question, If I'm not seeing transformation happen in my life, what is it that I'm beholding or centralizing? That's the connection there. When Jesus is central, when he is Lord, and when you're fixed on him, the Bible says we are being changed when we're fixed on him. And so many times, you know how it goes, it happens in my life. I drift away from him and other things just get exalted above him. And before I know it, I'm like, man, I'm struggling with heart attitudes and heart sin. I've got these issues that are going on in my life. Why is it? 
It's because I have not been fixed on Jesus, exalting him and seeing him for who he truly is. Idolatry will lead you down to the road of sin and destruction. Who are you focused on? Keep Jesus at the center of your life by prioritizing him in all of your glory. In all of his glory, not your glory. (laughs) All right, point number two. Listen to Jesus. They're on the mountain, and a voice comes from a cloud in verses 7 and 8. Peter has unknowingly spoken, stumbled into error by trying to monumentalize these others alongside of Jesus, but God won't let that stand. I love how God's voice speaks here in verse 7. A voice came out of the cloud, And the voice said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And here God identifies Jesus. God says, this is my beloved son. God has spoken or speaks three times in the Gospels during Jesus' lifetime. At the baptism, you remember, where Jesus was being baptized, And God speaks from heaven, but we don't know that other people heard that voice. He says to Jesus, Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Later on in the book of John, a voice comes from heaven and people hear it and they say, man, that sounded like thunder or an angel coming from the sky. God said, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. And here is just the other, the third statement. This is my beloved son, Peter, James, and John heard him. You've been to events where there's a special speaker. Someone comes out and introduces that person. And so they're standing up front and the other person is off stage to the right. And their credentials are being poured out by this introductory speaker so that you might see the next person coming in as being qualified. Well, here is God introducing Jesus to the disciples. And what are his credentials? He is my beloved son. And in doing so, God is communicating that very specific relationship to Jesus calling him. He's my son. Okay? I got two boys. One's out there, one's over there. I can say he's my son. No other dad in here can lay claim on him. He's mine. There's a uniqueness to that. And not only is God saying, he is my son, but he's also communicating a specific kind of love that exists between the father and the son. In fact, among the whole trinity, he's calling him the beloved son. He's my son whom I love. And in all of this, we can see that there is identity that's given to Jesus. Now, real quick aside. You remember, what's the last covenant that God had made with his people? It's the Davidic covenant. In Psalm 2, verse 7, he spoke of this coming king in terms of sonship. He said, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus is that son. Moses, Elijah, they cannot claim this status. Nobody can claim the status that they are the beloved son like Jesus. And out of this identity of who Jesus is, 
there needs to come a response. So remember, the special speaker coming out, he pours out the credentials, and you're supposed to be saying, okay, those credentials are so important, I'm going to listen. And that's what God does for us. He says, this is my beloved son. Now the response is, you must listen to him. And this idea of listening is not simply hearing the words coming out of Jesus' mouth. It's listening with the intent that I will obey and I will heed what he says. I'm listening to understand and follow. Now, Jesus had just spoken to Peter in chapter 8. He had told him, hey, I got to be persecuted. I'm going to suffer. And three days later, I'm going to rise up. And Peter responded with that, no, no, it can't happen this way. And you remember Jesus said to him, hey, get behind me, Satan. You're not listening to me. When it comes to the words of Jesus, when it comes to the message of Jesus, we are either on board listening to everything that he says and following in obedience to him, or else we are listening to the father of lies. And so another question pops up. Are we listening to Jesus? What is the world listening to today? You think about the book of James. James says that there's an earthly wisdom out there and it's characterized by jealousy, jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and vile practice. And you see that going on in the world. The world is listening to that kind of wisdom. And you see God's wisdom that's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. What are you listening to? Or what have you been listening to with the ears of your heart? And again, we could go in those same categories. Are you listening to people? It might not just be that. It could be that you're listening to an experience that has happened in the past that has jaded the ears of your heart, so you're not sure if you can listen to Jesus. By that, I mean this. You may have been in a church where there was corruption, and you're like, if that church is corrupt, and that dude is corrupt, and he represents quote-unquote Jesus, why would I go to any other church and listen to some guy up front and heed what he has to say or heed what the Word of God has to say? So you're listening to an experience from the past. Or something happens in your marriage. Something hurtful happens to your marriage. And over and over again, you're hearing the voices from the past over and over again. And so you're listening to that and saying, well, if I'm going to go through that again, I, I have to respond this way. Or in order to avoid that again, I have to respond that way. And you keep replaying this over and over again. And you keep going down a path where you're listening to the past over and over again. And here's Jesus who cuts through it all and says, listen to me. I'm the one who is the way. I'm the one who is the truth. I am the one who is the life. So whatever has happened in your past with people or events, or suffering, or deception, or lies, or hurtfulness, you clear all of that away because the best path going forward for you is to listen to the words of Jesus. We don't respond to people because of what's happened in the past and listen to the past. We respond to people because we're listening to what Jesus would have to say to us right now. And what does he say? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your 
neighbor, that person, right? Just listen to Jesus. Keep going forward. Walk the path that Jesus walked. Will there be suffering? Absolutely. He told us at the end of chapter 8 that anyone who's going to save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Keep listening to Jesus. Let's move on to point number three. We'll conclude with this. Simply look at Jesus. They were coming down the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man. This is another title for Jesus. We'll we'll talk about this more and more through the Gospel of Mark. Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, put yourself in their minds again. Peter has confessed, you're the Messiah. You're the Deliverer. You're the King. He's coming down the mountain and he's saying, oh yeah, by the way, I got to die. These categories don't go together. Kings who deliver don't die. They stay alive. They defeat their enemies. So you can imagine there's some confusion in their minds. They kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes, the religious leaders, say that Elijah must come first? And he says to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer? There's there's this theme. There's Jesus calling them back to this, that the Son of Man, he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And we'll see him go to Jerusalem. We'll see him go to the cross. We'll see him suffer on the cross for us. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And you're sitting here, and you're asking yourself the question, well, who is he referring to with Elijah? Is he referring to Elijah the prophet that we just saw up on top of the mountain? Let Scripture interpret Scripture. You go back to Matthew's account of this, and it says that they understood that he was referring to John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah. And what did they do with John the Baptist, the one who came in the spirit of Elijah? Knocked him off. And in the same way, they're going to do that with Jesus. And so here we're concluding here, and we're saying, here is the Messiah that we're looking at, and we're anticipating him going to the cross and dying. This is the death that Jesus willfully chooses. The Messiah, the Son of God, comes and he suffers for you by taking the punishment that you deserve from God for your sins upon himself. The sins of your selfishness, the sins of your judgmental attitude, the sins of your unfaithfulness to him, the sins of your, I have to have it my way, the sins of your past, the sins of your present, the sins of your future. Jesus is saying, I am going to the cross. Here's the Messiah, the deliverer the identified Son of God who willfully comes and suffers for you. You see him on the cross dying for you. And when you see him on the cross dying for you, what you're seeing is, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve it. A substitute has come in my place. I deserve the death. And as we look at Jesus suffering on the cross, He rightfully takes his center place in our lives because we know that through him and him alone comes salvation. Folks, as we back away from this text and just move into our week, God is clearly identifying his son here. 
And our response should be, yes, he is the son. He needs to be central in my life. Keep him the center of your attention this week. Prioritize him above all things. Listen to him. Listen to the word of Christ. I didn't go there in the text this morning. Look to him this week. Keep him central. Let's pray.